This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. This message is a follow-up to the previous message. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes at the beginning here, and I'm going to review what we talked about before. Uh, But this message is completely in context with the message two weeks ago. I just couldn't do it all in one Sunday, so I broke it up uh, into two parts. So if you're new to the study... Uh, here's, here's what we're learning about 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written uh, by Peter, one of, the, uh, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' disciples, and he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So uh, they're living under the Roman Empire. Uh, Nero is the emperor, and they are experiencing resistance. Peter calls it a fiery trial. And he begins the letter by just telling these suffering Christians what all God has done for them. It's absolutely glorious. He's given them new life. He's given them a promise for eternity. He's done these wonderful things for them. And uh, then he begins to tell them, and this is what we looked at two weeks ago, how they are to live. So here is the context of what we're going to talk about tonight, because we can, what we're going to talk about tonight is controversial. Let me just say that right now. Some of the things I said last time were controversial, I think, but for sure tonight's what we're talking about is controversial. But here's the context of what is being talked about, is he is telling them, how do you live in a culture where you are on the margins? The Christians are not in the periphery, uh, in the center of the culture, they're on the periphery, they're on the margins of the culture is how they feel. How do you respond when you are the minority position in a hostile culture. How are you supposed to live when the culture doesn't worship Jesus? When the culture doesn't embrace biblical values? When the culture doesn't support you for following the Lord and in fact resist you, uh, persecute you, and you are following Christ at a cost? That's Peter's audience, and that's more and more the world that we may be finding ourselves in, an increasing resistance to faith. And so in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, he means Gentiles. He's talking about unbelievers here. And so he's saying, okay, you live in a world of unbelievers. So here's what you should do. You should live in such a way and your conduct should be such that even though they resist you, even though they say that you are evildoers, that ultimately they will see your lifestyle, they'll see your witness, and they'll turn to God in faith. That your life should be so compelling that even though the Bible, uh, this book says, even though they slander you, even though they resist you, they will look at your life and they will say, your life is compelling and they'll turn to the Lord. Now, here's what we talked about last week. So what kind of lifestyle are they to live? If they're a minority voice, if they're being resisted, what should their lifestyle be like? And in a word, here it is, submission. Submission. Christians are to live submissive lifestyles. And that's what he says in this passage. In, chapter, in verse 13, we talked about last time, be subject 
for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So last two weeks ago, we spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean to be subjected to civil authority? How do we subject ourselves uh, to our government? How do we subject ourselves to our president, to our Congress, to our governor? And not just how do we do that outwardly, but how do we do that in our heart? Because in verse 18, he says um, that we are to, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In your heart, honor the emperor, which for them meant Nero. So we talked about that. Secondly, so be subject to human authority in government. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So we don't have an exact correlation. Uh, I, I explained the context of that, but we said probably for us, uh, being subject to your employer would be a close or m- m- as close as we can get to that, especially if your employer treats you unjustly primarily if he treats you or she treats you unjustly. So if you're treated unjustly by your employer, how should you respond submissively, being subject to them, so that when they see your lifestyle, they will realize that God has done something in you and they will glorify the Lord in heaven. And the reason he says that we're to live this way is because that is the way Christ lived and Christ subjected himself to the point of death. It's completely countercultural. It's completely, it rubs, it rubs against us. But if we thought signing up for following Jesus was going to be, we acted just like we always acted and thought like we always thought and mirrored our culture, then we were sorely deceived because following Jesus means to live completely counterculturally. And the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom that says we humble ourselves under authority. And Peter is speaking specifically about unjust and unfair authority. So be subject to human government, be subject to your masters. And now we'll look at the third be subject. There was three be subjects and that's chapter three. Chapter three, verse one is tonight's passage. Likewise, wives be subject, same language, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be subject tonight to your word. We submit our hearts and our minds and our lives as disciples of Jesus to your authority, the authority of your word. And we pray that you would bring our thinking and our feeling, our emotions, our feeling, and our actions 
uh, under your authority. And we pray that you would give us grace to see the beauty of humility, the glory, and the freedom of laying down our lives to serve others, all of us. And in particular, we pray for marriage relationships tonight, that what we see in this passage, that, 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 that you would bring it to life by the beauty uh, of your power, by the beauty of the gospel to be on display in us and through us, we pray. So Lord, help us, uh, help me, Lord, say what needs to be said from your word uh, to help us all know you better and give us grace uh, to respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this whole chapter and this whole idea of submissiveness to government, to employers, uh, in family relationships, to husbands, uh, this whole business seems so foreign to us because we all have an impulse against this. We want to assert our rights. I mean, we are Americans. Uh, as we said last time, and it's in our DNA and it's in the air that we breathe that we demand our rights. We are not inclined to lay down our rights. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And we're called to lay down our rights. We can be quick to demand our rights. And as Christians in particular, we can be quick to demand our rights with a theological point of view because God is a God of justice. And so we are to be on the side of justice, and we are to stand against injustice, uh, and we are really quick to stand against all injustices that are against me personally, really quick to act there, and not as quick to say, how did Jesus respond in such situations, and why did he respond in that way? Because in all of this, Peter points to Jesus. Look back at chapter 2, verse 21. In the middle of all this be subject talk, in verse 21 it says, For to this you have been called. This is the very calling and nature of a Christian. For to this you have been called, he says, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And he goes on to say, when he was reviled, he didn't revile. He didn't push back. He didn't resist. Um, but he humbled himself uh, for uh, the Lord. And I built some fences last week, and I'm going to do so again this week about what this doesn't mean. I can't say everything it doesn't mean. I do want to note, Peter builds no fences and gives no exceptions. Uh, The rest of the Bible does. There are exceptions. And so I'm going to talk particularly in submission and marriage, what would be the exceptions? I'm going to do that briefly, uh, because the tenor of the text does not find an exception. We all find the exceptions very quickly when it talks to humility and submission uh, we want to know the, the, the exceptions and make sure that we're in the exception clause, but he's just not talking that way. If I'm going to be honest with this text, he's saying submit. There are some exceptions, which I'll point to, but that's, uh, that's an exception and not the rule. So why does he say all of this? Well, here's, here's the reasons. Here's the first reason. I'm going to give you several things he's talking about here. Here's the first reason. Submission is a convincing witness. Submission is a convincing witness. That's where he starts with with wives, and he particularly addresses wives, some of which have husbands who are unbelievers. Uh, Verse 1, likewise, just like submitting to employers, just like submitting to government. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. It does not say women be subject to men. It does not say wives be subject to all husbands. It says women, it says wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, which is probably language meaning they're unbelievers. 
If they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he begins uh, like the whole passage has been about, which is live a life among the Gentiles that is honorable so that they will see your good deeds and glorify God. That's what it said in chapter 2.12. And now he's saying, he's not just saying as citizens or as servants, he's saying in your family, wives, if your husbands are not a believer, you have a powerful way to present a compelling apologetic, an example, a testimony, a witness that is not a verbal witness, but is a lifestyle witness. And he actually says that as you humbly submit yourself, that that some husbands will find that, and not all necessarily, but some will find that a convincing testimony of Jesus, and that they will actually be won over. That is, they will be converted. They will turn from paganism and turn to belief in Jesus uh, by your example, by what he calls your respectful and pure conduct. So the unbelieving husband needs to hear the gospel for sure. He needs to understand that Jesus is a savior and he died for our sins. He needs to understand the gospel. But what Peter says is, having heard the gospel Your most powerful witness to your unbelieving husband won't be repetitive verbal explanations of the gospel, but a life that demonstrates the gospel has taken root in you such that you are respectful and humble and submissive even to an unbelieving husband who's leading the family not towards Jesus necessarily, but uh, uh, he's living for perhaps another God. Uh, The tradition when Peter wrote, would be that the wife would follow the husband's God. And so ultimately, here he's not advocating that, obviously, uh, but he's saying that your, your life can actually be an apologetic, a proof of the gospel. I mean, it's an amazing statement. Your life can be an apologetic, a proof of the gospel. Now, let me say this. This makes sense on paper. What I'm saying is logical. But I would not want to give the impression that this is at all easy. And I I want to speak a little bit about wives who have unbelieving husbands. Um, If you are a wife with an unbelieving husband, as a church, we want to support you. You are heroic. I mean, you're singled out in this passage. You have a high and a lofty calling. And we want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. And we hope that the church family can supplement your witness by holding you up and by reflecting the love of Christ ourselves to your unbelieving husband if, if, he, will, uh, you know, if he will allow us to get to know him and relate to him in any way. And I, I have a... You know, hopefully, as a pastor, I could be tender-hearted towards all needs, but I want to say I particularly have a tender heart towards this need because this is the home I grew up in. This is the home I grew up in. And uh, my mom is now with the Lord, and I wish I could report uh, that my dad is converted. He, he's not yet, but he's still alive, and he's healthy, and I'm trusting the Lord, and you can pray for him with me. Uh, But I do want to encourage you, so maybe that doesn't sound encouraging. Wow, you're telling me your mom all those years and your dad's not a believer. Well, but he's still alive, so the story's not over. Uh, But I do want to say this to you. 
uh, I am one of four kids, and all of us know Christ and are walking with the Lord and are active in local churches and have served the Lord our entire adult lives. That, that is very encouraging. So if you are a wife uh, with an unbelieving husband, your kids are not penalized by that. The Holy Spirit regenerates powerfully, and he does that in homes where there is spiritually a single parent. Okay, And sometimes harder than that because there can be resistance. Uh, so as a church, I hope we can make room for more. And single dads, this passage isn't about that, but there are dads who have unbelieving wives as well. So we want to support those men as well. Oftentimes it's the other way though. It's ladies who do not have a supporting husband and sometimes have a resisting husband who's not a believer. And they are, they are not just seeing a co-worker uh, they are one flesh with an unbeliever. And so daily there is the challenges that those of us who have a, a Christian spouse can't relate to. We cannot relate to it in terms of what our daily experience is. But we want to be compassionate and we want to help them. If that's you, we want to help you apply this scripture. And we want to believe God for you that the Lord will use you to lead your husband to Christ, certainly by verbal testimony, but that he will help you through your life to do so. Um, Now, this is probably an appropriate time to say what I said two weeks ago. Uh, Submission to human authority is not absolute. Actually, we had a reading tonight from Acts 5 that showed where it's not absolute, uh, where they said we have to obey the Lord and not you, so we have to preach the gospel. So if you are an unbelieving wife and your husband asks you not to follow Christ, which would have been a real example in this passage, uh, you're a pagan, your wife gets converted, the way everything is done in Roman culture is, well, you don't, you don't go where your husband doesn't go, you follow your husband's gods. Uh, you can't do that. You have to be respectful, as the passage says. You should be humble, uh, and you should deny that request. You must serve Jesus and not a human if your husband tells you you cannot worship Jesus. If your husband asks you to sin in any way and leads you into sin, uh, you must say no. Christian wife or, or um, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Christian husband or unbelieving husband, if your husband uh, asks you to willfully sin, I'm, what's, I'm saying not, not, not something that's not your preference. I'm saying something that the Bible clearly says is sin. You don't submit to that. God doesn't call you to submit. You're respectful, uh, you're humble, you're loving, you explain why the Bible would forbid such a practice, and you don't submit to that. Uh, and as I mentioned last time as well, this passage doesn't talk about this, but the idea of submission would not include subjecting yourself to abuse, domestic abuse. I talked about that last time. So if your husband, unbelieving husband, is abusing you, if you're in a situation of domestic abuse, that needs to be reported to the authorities, which we looked at last week. The authorities are to punish evildoers. That's what the passage said. So uh, we can help, help you in reporting that, but you, that needs to, we, we can help you, but ultimately that needs to be reported to authorities if you're a wife. So submission doesn't mean that you are being beaten by your husband and that submission means you continue with that. The passage earlier already said there's authority to punish evildoers. So those would be some exceptions for what's being uh, said here. But apart from those kind of exceptions, um, the Bible does say that, you, that wives are to uh, submit themselves humbly to their husbands. And I think Peter at least implies or at least anticipates that there could be difficulty in that. And, and that, that you will need the, the power of the gospel, the work of Christ, uh, the grace of God, and to remember the example of Jesus as well to shape your response to a proud husband. 
to shape your response to a selfish husband, a husband who may be unloving, a husband who isn't following Jesus but is following a different agenda. Uh, God, God wants to give you the grace to entrust yourself to the Lord and to reflect Jesus to him just as a citizen would reflect himself, would reflect Christ to an unbelieving governing authority that they must submit to, like Nero, or a, a servant responding to an unjust master. Uh, and by Peter putting an unbelieving husband in the same category, I think it's at least possible he implies there could be some, you could face some difficulties. Uh, and that's where the church can help you and where the church can support you and where the church can encourage you. Now, if you're a lady with an unbelieving husband or you're close to one that you, you try to serve and befriend, you're probably interest, uh, you're instantly thinking, wow, are you saying someone's salvation is dependent on my example? Because if so, they are doomed eternally. Wouldn't we all feel that? If someone's salvation is dependent upon my example, whoa, that, that, they're in danger of eternal condemnation. Wouldn't we feel that about our kids? If our kids' salvation is going to be fully based on my perfection, none of my kids will know the Lord, right? So we're not saying that. Uh, But one of the most powerful demonstrations of, what does he call it? Respectful and pure conduct that you, ma'am, can have to your unbelieving husband or your believing husband is this, to acknowledge when you fail and to ask forgiveness. That's the gospel. When the gospel, the gospel changes us so that when we sin, we acknowledge it and we ask forgiveness. And that is sometimes so powerful that that example at times is, I mean, I don't know how to say this, but at times that's more powerful than if we hadn't sinned at all. I'm not saying sin, but I'm saying sometimes the greatest work of God is seeing, seeing when I take ownership for my sin and I repent to someone. Sometimes that testimony is more compelling than if someone just saw me as a nice person and didn't see my sin. If you're married to someone, they're going to see your sin. A lot. They're going to see it. And so it's not that we're sinless, but that we're humble and we're submissive and we take responsibility for our sins. Whether your spouse is a Christian or not, whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife, it does not matter. We're to walk in a humility that owns our own sins. So the first point that he makes here is that submission is compelling. He made the same point to government and work. And now he's saying in the family, submission is compelling. Here's the second thing he says to wives is that submission is true beauty. Submission is true beauty. Look what he says, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So the next thing he says, and this is the context, it's the same thing. We're still talking be subject here. Uh, It's the same thing. And he says it's the same context. And here's what he says. Here's what is true beauty. He says, in other words, he's saying to them, don't get caught up in uh, pursuing beauty in the way that society determines beauty because God has a different uh, standard of beauty. And so he takes several things that in their culture, some of which would translate directly to our culture, but he takes several things in their culture which would have been a mark of beauty and said, don't, don't make this your focus. Don't make this your chief concern. What does he say? He talks about braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, uh, and clothing. 
So the braiding of hair was probably, as I've read, um, most commentators think this probably had to do with something that would have been very elaborate. So if you like have a braid in your hair tonight, don't feel convicted. Oh man, they're calling me out at the church. I've one time, you know, here, I, my girl's got like, I don't know, braids. She's got a pigtail. Does that count? You know, is she in sin or no, that's the legalist. The legalist just looks at it and doesn't look at the heart of it, but just takes the list on the surface and doesn't ask any questions. The braiding of hair represented something likely that was very elaborate, that would have taken time, that would have taken effort, perhaps would have taken money. And probably, and we know this because the next thing, which refers to gold, was probably the image that the rich would have. So that you had someone do some ornate braiding of your hair, or you took an excessive amount of time if you could do it yourself. So we're not just talking about, I got a little braid thing going on here. We're talking about something that would have been excessive in its nature, and it probably would have communicated wealth, likely, because only someone with the luxury of time or the luxury of money could get the kind of do that they're talking about, okay? Secondly, is talking about gold. So don't make your primary... It doesn't mean... So if you have gold jewelry, don't be doing this right now, okay? It's not saying that if you have any gold, you're in sin. He's saying if you are primarily pursuing external adornment so that beauty to you and what you take security in and what's important to you is spending a lot of money on a lot of bling then you're looking externally where you shouldn't be looking. And he doesn't mean that you can't do these at all. So somebody will say, you can't have, any, you can't have a braid, you can't have gold. Here's the list. Or clothing. To be consistent, you'd have to say you can't have clothing. And I think we probably have some verses that would forbid that. So you say, you can't do the list. No braiding of hair, no putting on of jewelry, gold jewelry, and no clothing that you wear. No, he's just saying, don't, yes, wear clothing. But don't make your clothing and your external adornment your identity and what you put your heart in for beauty. So don't spend tons of money and tons of time working on the outside, which is perishable, because he says, rather adorn, verse 4, adorn yourself, the hidden person of the heart, with imperishable beauty. So you can have, you can be attractive, uh, you can put on some adornment to make yourself attractive, but you don't root your anticipate, you don't root your uh, identity in that's what I mean to say. And you don't spend ex- uh, inordinate time and awareness and money on that, and yet pay no attention to what's imperishable, which is your inner person, which God says that's where the true beauty is, and that beauty is a submissive heart. He calls it this, gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very, very precious. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, focus internally. So this submission is not only a compelling witness, it's also the nature of real beauty. It's also the nature of real beauty. Now he says, I want to talk about these a little bit. He talks about a quiet uh, let me find the verse I lost it. He says, uh, he talks about a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, and I'm going to show you this exegetically. I'm going to show you this from the scripture. Uh, he's not talking about a personality type here. So he's not saying godly people don't ever, you have to be an introvert to be godly. He, he's not get, talking about a personality type uh, in this. Um, rather, he's talking about Christ-like character. Here's something that I found, I did not know this, that's very interesting. He says you to have a gentle spirit. That word gentle is used three times in the Bible. Besides here. Three other times. Twice it refers to Jesus. 
twice it refers to Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I don't know if Jesus was an introvert or an extrovert, but I know that Jesus talked and that he spoke. He wasn't silent. So a quiet spirit doesn't mean you never say a word, because did Jesus ever say a word? He's the same thing. I'm gentle. This characterizes me. Matthew 21, 5. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. That was when he came into the city at Palm Sunday. He didn't come in as a king, you know, doing battle, taking over Rome in a chariot, ready for heads to roll. He came in humbly. So Jesus says, I'm gentle in my demeanor, which is, which is humble, which is humble. Did he say anything? Yes. Yeah. So the gentleness and the quietness doesn't mean, okay, all, if you're godly, you're a mime or something like this. Uh, it doesn't mean absolute silence. It means Christ-like character that would be described as gentle. Now, here's a key to what that means. The word is used one other time in the Bible, and it's not translated gentle in my translation there. It's translated meek. Matthew 5.5, 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, or same word, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Gentleness. Matthew Henry offers maybe the, he's a historic commentator, offers maybe the best description of this word. He says this word, and I think this characterizes Jesus. He says this word speaks of an easiness of spirit. An easiness. A gentle spirit, it accommodates the soul to every occurrence. The gentle heart is accommodated to no matter what the situation, it's at rest, it's gentle. It accommodates the soul to every occurrence so that a man or a woman is easy to himself and all about him. There's an easiness of spirit, an easiness, a gentleness, a quiet confidence in God. I think getting at a gentle spirit, we can think about what would be the opposite, and that would help us a little bit. What does he mean, gentle? Well, if, instead of a gentle spirit, it means that we don't have a rough spirit. A brusque spirit, a harsh spirit. Jesus wasn't brusque or harsh. It means we don't have a hot-tempered spirit. It means we don't have, we're not given to an angry outburst spirit. It means that we're not prickly, but we're easy. An easiness about us. Now, when we use that word culturally, to be an easy person is something bad. Okay, I know that. I mean, we use that word. Someone who's sexually loose is said to be easy. We're not talking about that kind. We're talking about an easiness of spirit. I'm easy. She's easy in the Lord. There's a gentleness about us. That's what he is talking about here. And in 1 Peter, it's written to people that are being tested. So he says to these wives who are being in a culture where they are tested for their faiths and maybe in their own home, some of them are, many of them are not, but some of them are. And he says, true beauty is this gentle heart like Christ. Listen, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of unfair circumstances, even in the midst, in this whole passage of being unfairly treated, there is an easiness of the spirit which trusts God. A gentleness, a spirit. We're not insisting. This applies to all the B subjects. We're not just going around insisting on our way, demanding our way, asserting ourselves, acting pushy, even threatening others. That's not Jesus. There's an easiness about our spirit. And that, it says, that meekness is an imperishable beauty in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, Anybody with the money can get the latest braided hairdo. 
or the time or the talent. Anybody can do that. Anybody with the money can go get jewelry. Anybody with the money can go buy a new outfit. But only the Holy Spirit does the miraculous work into a person's heart, and in this context, a wife's heart. Only the Holy Spirit does a work into a wife's heart, the miraculous work where she freely and joyfully is willing to respond meekly in the midst of trial, gently. That is beautiful, and that is strength in the Lord. That is the strength of the Lord. To be gentle doesn't mean to, or to, and to be quiet in spirit doesn't mean to be inferior. Is Jesus inferior? Jesus comes in gently on a donkey. Jesus says, I am gentle of spirit. Is Jesus inferior to anybody? Jesus gets down and postures himself, subjects himself in his posture to the disciples by washing their feet, which was the role of a domestic slave. Is Jesus inferior to the disciples? No, it's not a question of being inferior. It's a question of freely harnessing one's strength and gifts and ability for the glory of God by the Spirit of God, making her gentle in her response in trials and to her husband. It means to not bristle or react sinfully, but joyfully and willingly be deferential, and in so doing, submit to God. This is a quiet, this is a treasure. And I want to say, this is strength. This is strength. Strength is not the world champion lady getting kicked in the head by another lady. That, that's what our culture thinks is strength. And I told you I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to talk about UFC and give you my opinions about that either because it would offend some of you. But uh, that's not strength. Kicking A lady kicking somebody and knocking out, that's not strength. Strength is this. The Spirit of God, the power of God, shaping a heart to delight in the role of being a helper, to delight in the role of coming alongside her husband as a partner with respect and support, even if he is an unbeliever, and showing respect to him even when he's not acting respectfully, because please note, he's called to love her even when she's acting in an unlovely manner. That's strength. That's not being a doormat. That's, the, that's strength. And, th- and then it speaks as well of having a quiet spirit. The, world, the word quiet means calm or peaceful or tranquil. It means she's not restless. It means she's not turbulent in soul. But it means there's a quietness of soul that trusts the Lord. She's in, she's in an environment of persecution. And when you live under an environment of persecution, the temp- I can't imagine the temptation to fear, to self-sufficiency, to self-preservation. Listen, if you feel like your husband's not leading well, let's say he's a Christian, because most of these husbands were Christians, and the, the family is being persecuted, and the family's being resisted, and she's sharing her opinion, and she's got ideas. Maybe they're better ideas. Maybe they're good ideas, and he's not really listening to those and embracing those, and yet he's leading the family in a time where there's pressure and persecution. What's she supposed to do? She's supposed to trust the Lord with a gentle and quiet spirit. Does that mean she's not supposed to speak? And I think I've made that point because Jesus spoke, but absolutely uh, not. She is. Um, matter of fact, as a husband, let me speak as a husband, because I can't speak as a wife. Uh, but as a husband, let me say, 
I'm completely not blessed if my wife won't speak and participate in, in something. So if we're trying to make a decision, we've got, or we're trying to solve a problem, we're trying to face, we're trying to navigate something with our family, with our kids, a decision we're making that's significant, it does not help me to say to my wife, who's, who's not here, she's in children's ministry. I wanted to be her to be here, but she, she submitted to children's ministry and not me because... <laughs> You've got to obey God and not man, I guess. I don't know. So she's in children's ministry, so she's not here to verify this but, uh, or, or to, to hear what I'm saying. But it, it does not bless me to say, you know, what do you think about this? What's your idea? What do you want to do? Uh, nothing. I don't know. Whatever you think. What? That doesn't help me. I don't want a wife that doesn't participate, that doesn't share her ideas. Eve was brought to Adam as a helper because the guy needed help. And that didn't mean silence. She had gifts. She had discernment. She had wisdom that he needed. Now, he was called to lead, and she was to bring her input in a way that affirmed his leadership and recognized his leadership and at times challenged his leadership with, an, with, a, with a different point of view, respectfully. But a husband is not helped by a wife who isn't in the game, who isn't participating, who's not part of the relationship. So it's not that she's not participating. In this context in particular, it's how is she participating and what is her attitude? Gentle and and, uh, peaceful is how she is to be. Here's how she's to be. And men are to be this way too. Husbands are to be this way. James 1, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That's a quiet spirit. A quiet spirit doesn't mean I never speak. A quiet spirit means I'm quick to listen. I'm quick to listen. Got two ears and one mouth. You know that analogy. So I should do twice the listening. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That applies to everybody, but that certainly would apply to wives in this context of a quiet spirit. So, submission is a compelling witness. Submission is true beauty. Number three, submission is bold trust. I'm going to need to move fast. Let's look at the clock. Move fast. So I'm not going to say a ton about this. But verses five and six, her submission is trust. Look at verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, look what it goes on said, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, submission is trust ultimately in God. Because here's what he's saying, the women of old that, that, uh, that followed their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, she says, he says, they put their hope in God. That's the definition. They hoped in God. And when they faced frightening situations, they didn't fear. Do not fear a frightening situation. Why? Because you've trusted God. Real submission is ultimately a trust. Uh, you're trusting your husband, but your husband has failures, and so you're ultimately trusting God. And you're trusting God at his word that his promises are true. You're saying, oh, Lord, you say this. I probably have a different idea. You know, when we read our Bible, we, probably, we should have times where our faith is challenged. I read a quote about this passage this week. Somebody said, if your faith never upsets you, then you have a designer faith and you're the designer. We should be reading things in the scripture that go, whoa, that's a poke. Whoa, that's a challenge. Lord, I need you on that one. And maybe this is one of those passages uh, for wives. I'm going to get to the husbands in a second because we're in here too. Um, 
But he's saying here that this is a trusting the Lord. Look at 2.23, just above Jesus' uh, Jesus example, 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do when he submitted himself to earthly authority? He entrusted himself to the one who will make all things right and bring final judgment. That's trust. So submission is an entrusting. Now, you don't say to your husband, I'm not doing this for you. I'm just doing this for the Lord. Well, that's not a gentle and quiet spirit that's respectful. <laughs> I don't respect you. I respect the Lord over you. I'm only doing it because of the Bible. <laughs> well, that you, I, I think uh, you just lost your reward. Uh, so it's not that. It's you love your husband. You want to support and help and encourage and strengthen your husband in affirming his leadership to help him to be a success as a leader as he's to help you uh, be a success as his partner. Uh, but, but you're doing it ultimately for the Lord. That's why you're ultimately doing it. And God will honor your submission. Um, the, Abra- the Sarah passage, I can only find one place that he, she calls him Lord. Uh, and it's, she refers to him as her Lord. It's when the angel or the Lord comes and says, you're going to have a baby. And she's way past childbearing years. And she said, I'm worn out. I think that's her exact words. I'm worn out. And my Lord is, she didn't say worn out, but something. He, he's old too. Uh, and so anyway, but she refers to him respectfully. It's a respectful term. You'll notice it's not capitalized. It's not the word for God. He's not saying you are my God. Uh, that would be wrong. You're, you're, another person cannot be your God. But it, it, it probably is translated closely for us as sir. She referred to him as sir or something like that. So she was respectful of her husband. Let me go on to say something to the husbands, though, because I'm about out of time. Uh, Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So he closes with addressing husbands. It's interesting, he didn't address those in government, and he didn't address masters in the previous sections of Be Subject, but he does address husbands. And here's the reality, guys. As Christian husbands, here's the reality. If we obeyed verse 7, if we lived with our wives in an understanding way, and if we showed our wives honor, submission would not be a challenge. If we were like Jesus, this wouldn't be controversial. The reason this is controversial is look in the mirror. Uh, That's why this is controversial, because we are fallen people And our wives are called to follow our leadership in submission and respect with a gentle heart and a gentle attitude. Here's the call. We are to love our wives, Paul says, um, sacrificially as Christ loves the church. Um, So here, the way he says it is we're to live with our wives in an understanding way and we are to show them honor. So the tenor of the passage is that wives are to freely submit in faith, but there's a calling to husbands as well, and there's much more to husbands elsewhere in the Scripture. And the reality is, it's not a one-way street. The Bible doesn't just address wives. This passage happened to spend more time on them. But it does not just address wives. It addresses husbands as well. And the husbands, uh, I think, arguably have a more difficult calling. Now, on the curse... 
I think wives got it harder. The childbearing is harder than thorns and thistles, okay? So on the curse, maybe the wives got that one harder. But in terms of roles in marriage, she is called to submit. He is called to die. She is called to respect. He is called to sacrifice himself. Because he is to love her as Christ loves the church. He is to absorb the brunt of the challenges of life for her. Jesus absorbed everything for us. And we, and we are called, in this situation where there's persecution, he is to protect his wife, and he is to take the hits, uh, absorbing the challenges, absorbing whatever he can in protection and love to honor her, un- living with her in an understanding way, recognizing that she's the weaker vessel. Now, I I did some study on what that means, and the best conclusion I can draw from that is that it's speaking physically, literally, that she's the weaker vessel. This isn't always the case, uh, and I won't point out any couples where I think this is not the case, but... um, So I'm not looking at anybody, but no. uh, This is not always the case, but generally speaking, men are... uh, Husbands are uh, stronger than their wives. Not always, physically, not always, but generally... Generally, if you survey humanity, that's generally the case. And so he's saying, recognize the vulnerabilities of your wife and use your strength to live with her in an understanding way and to show her honor in all of life. So there's a strong word to the husbands. Love her by putting her first. Understand uh, what kind of vulnerabilities she might have. Uh, as one weaker than you, and seek to care for her and help her, uh, seek to bless her uh, in whatever ways you can. Study your wife, know your wife, relate to her with compassion and understanding, not with demanding um, or something like that. She is, he says, your equal. Uh, He says, remember, she is an heir with you of the grace of life. So she's your equal. You're equally, all the ground is equal at the cross. You need a savior. She needs a savior. You both receive the grace of God. She's your equal. You have different roles, but she's equal in value, worth, dignity. She's your equal as an image bearer of God. She's your equal. You have a different relation. You have different roles in the marriage. Uh, You bear the responsibility of initiative, and she bears the responsibility uh, of supporting you in that leadership. But as I said earlier, as a leader, you should be working as a partner. Uh, You should be working together. She's not a child. She is an adult on her own two feet as a woman of God who who is an heir with you. So she is your one flesh companion. Realize that and use your leadership to honor and protect her of any vulnerability she might have, to care for her, to strengthen her. Use the strength you do have and your leadership to honor her, is what he says here. And if you don't, there is this really scary statement, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So the husband who is domineering, the husband who is lacks understanding, the husband who dishonors his wife, either through domineering or through passivity where he doesn't take his role in leadership, either domineering or passive, either way. The husband who does that, it will affect his prayers and the things he asks God for, they will be hindered. That that is, you don't find that very much in the scripture. 
And so there is this sober warning to husbands. And just like this sermon, which I hope mirrors the text, it's six verses about the wives and one to the husband. So I think my time has been about the same. But I, I break down. But I want to say the husbands, it's sobering what is said in a verse. And it causes us to see clearly our need for the Lord. So how is this possible? How do we do this? How do wives submit to their husbands? How do husbands live with their wives in an understanding way? And I imported Ephesians 5, love their wives as Christ loved the church. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we recognize we as married couples, and if you're single but one day will be married, uh, God's preparing you, we need the Lord in this. And we start with just confessing our sins where we failed. Wives, where you failed to have a gentle and quiet spirit, where you have failed to be respectful. Um, You start with confessing that. Husbands, where you've been either passive or domineering, where you failed to live with your wife in an understanding way, where you failed to show her honor, where you failed to leverage your strength to love, serve, care, provide for her. That's the weaker vessels thing in there. Where you failed to do that, ask the Lord's, forgiveness, where you have in any way looked at her as lesser, not as a co-heir with you, but any, if there's any hint of that, you repent of that as well. So the Lord calls us, I think, first of all, to repent. And then I think he calls us to look to Jesus and say, praise God, Jesus obeyed all of this in her place. Praise God that the Father looks down upon us as Christians and says, even though you've been unsubmissive, I'm taking the submissiveness of Christ, wife, and I'm taking his submissiveness and I'm crediting it to your account. Praise God. And he says to the husband who has not been loving of his wife, I'm taking Christ's love for the church and I'm crediting that to your account. So I'm declaring you as one who's always loved your wife as Christ loves the church. And wife, I'm declaring you as one who has humbled yourself and entrusted yourself to the Lord faithfully as Jesus. So we receive forgiveness because of what Christ has done for us. And after we receive forgiveness because of what Christ has done for us, we then look to his example to emulate. And we ask the Lord to help us change our hearts, help us to take positive steps of obedience of what he's calling us to do in this passage. And then we ask forgiveness of our spouse so wives, go to your husband. If any of this passage convicts you or you see a failure in your life, you go to your husband and ask forgiveness. If he's an unbeliever and he doesn't know how to handle that, you're doing that before the Lord and you have no idea what impact that's having on him. And if he is a believer, you do that and, and that's how our relationships grows through confession and forgiveness. And husbands, if you have uh, failed to live with your wife in an understanding way uh, and show her honor and protect her, serve her, help her, care for her, lead her, uh, not be passive and not be domineering, but love her as Christ loves the church. So if you fail to it, then you confess that to her and ask her forgiveness. And then here's the last thing I think we do. Go to the Lord, celebrate our forgiveness before, ask forgiveness, celebrate our forgiveness for the Lord. Look at his example and uh, see how we're to live. Go to our spouse and then we do this. Then we ask our spouse, okay, wives, uh, start with husbands. Husband asks wife, how could I live with you in a more understanding way? How do you, not just what do I think, because if I'm going to understand my wife, I'm going to have to have her help me understand how to understand her. I can't just, I'm not omniscient. So Lord, or to my wife, uh, Ginger, how, how can I live with you in a more understanding way? Where could I show you honor that's meaningful in ways that I'm not? And where can I use my strength to serve you, care for you, love you as a weaker vessel? And then wives to your husband, how can I be more 
respectful? And how can my conduct be more what he called pure before you? Submiss, and how can I be subject? Is the word, the verb he uses in verse one. How can I do that? And, and where, where could you see me growing with a gentle and quiet spirit before the Lord? We ask our spouse that and ask for their help. I want you to imagine for a minute what a church would be like that was filled with married couples that lived this way. Can you imagine what a community would be like where there is this kind of value that is radical, where husbands say discipleship means I'm taking up my cross and I'm dying to myself and I'm loving my wife like Christ the church. Where wives say this is so countercultural in the world of feminism, this is nuts, but I am freely and joyfully by the power of Jesus and following his example, submitting myself to my husband and respecting him joyfully. To see a couple function in that way is so foreign in our culture. Love, care, tenderness, wisdom, to see a whole church culture that is built like that would change a city. It would change a city because people have not seen that kind of love, that kind of humility. People have not seen that kind of strength and power in the gospel that we could live like Christ. It is a glorious gospel witness, and that's why Paul says the marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church response to Christ. That's why he says marriage is a gospel testimony. Imagine a church like that. Imagine your marriage growing more, and, and your marriage is like that, but imagine it growing more and more. Imagine husbands getting saved and testimonies of unbelieving wives finding their husbands coming to Christ and built into the church. Wouldn't that be glorious to see in our new baptistry in the new building, unbelieving husbands saved and baptized in that water, testifying that it was the word of the gospel lived out through my wife that brought me to Christ. May we, may, we, may we reach many wives who have unbelieving husbands and then reach their husbands. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. And for our singles as well, you begin to embrace these things now. You begin to, ladies, if you're single, you don't submit yourself to all men. No, to your husband. So I'm not saying you're deferential to every guy on the planet. You're to live with a husband this way. But you're starting to cultivate that gentle and quiet spirit, ladies. Now, what does that mean? That confident trust in the Lord that I can entrust myself and trust him with the various authorities in my life. Men, you're learning as a single man, what does it mean to live sacrificially, to delay gratification uh, in my life, uh, to die to myself for the good of serving other people, ladies or men? serving others. What does it look like to lay down my life, not live as a selfish guy where it's all about me, but to build my life as a single man about serving others? You're preparing yourself for marriage when you live that way. And so God calls singles to this as well, to prepare yourself now. And he prepares all of us to pray that these things, uh, that the Lord may work in these ways. Hey, I know it is a pointed passage of scripture, but I also know we serve a glorious savior that gives grace to forgive and empower us for change. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.